Sutra, and uh, I'd like everybody please to to turn to page. Can you hear me in the back? That's a little too far. Turn it back up one notch. Right? Like you please to turn to the front of your sutra, where we have the name of the sutra in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and we're going to recite that and invoke their presence at the same time. Michael Lau.
I would like to point out to the, the gentleman sitting on the men's side that uh, every seat in the first vertical row is taken, which means anybody who comes in after you is going to have to climb over you to get to that seat or else go around you. But the, all the seats in the back are also taken, which means they've got to actually stumble. So you've effectively blocked anybody from filling in those 10 empty seats, if you notice. Right? That's why I always say, please fill in the front first, if you don't mind. Onigaishimasu. Dozo. Okay. Shishi. Thank you very much. Master Shenhua used to be really impolite. If you're sitting in a chair, you're fine. That's, you know, and you can move the chair up closer if you like. You don't have to be in the peanut section, peanut gallery. Master Hua would always just scold people. He would say, Don't be so selfish! Only know about yourself. You know, and boy, you'd never forget it after you heard him do that one. So I don't do that because I can. But uh, just to say that it, it really helps if, if people fill in the front first. That way, people who come behind very naturally kind of fill in. All right. Enough scolding. Uh, today is the 3rd of April, as I said. And uh, we're going to be, I'll tell you uh, towards the end that. Uh, we have a special event worldwide on April 5th, two days from today, which is, which you can't guess, it's Global Golden Rule Day. The Golden Rule. Golden Rule is one of those things that every culture celebrates and we take for granted. We just don't think about it. It's the Golden Rule. Yeah, yeah, everybody knows. But the Golden Rule, do unto others, right? And also... Uh, do not do to others. There's a yin and a yang expression of the golden rule which leads right back to the same principle. Um, that has now been made an international day through the United Nations based on a United Religions Initiative co cooperation circle and friends of mine who organized it. So just uh, we're trying to promote that and let people know that on the 5th of April, do unto others as you would have done to you or don't do to others things that you don't want done to you. So that's coming up. We'll talk about that in a minute. Please turn to page 90 and 91 in your text. Right up the top. Now, uh, last weekend I was in Toledo uh, visiting family and Dharma Master Hung Yun was kind enough to come and fill in. And I know she lectured several paragraphs, but I think I'll just go quickly over them again to keep the continuity and that way we'll have two perspectives on the same text. Same text. We're up at the top, the first paragraph. Bhutan 
而修行，安住十语中。Okay, good. We'll do those two for now.、Uh, over to the right, the English. They greed for neither benefit nor advantage. They only delight in the Buddha's body. With one mind, they seek the Buddha's wisdom. Concentration undivided, with no other thoughts. They cultivate all the paramitas. They have left flattery and deceit far behind. Their deeds match their words. And true speech is their refuge. Okay, I'm going to chant the, the Chinese, and then we'll chant the English. Bhutan Yiliang, Bhutan. Why don't you repeat after me? Try it. See if you can do it. Bhutan Yiliang, Weiao Fu Puti. Concentration undivided, with no other thoughts. Concentration undivided, with no other thoughts. Okay, that's a difficult sentence. They cultivate all the paramitas. They have left flattery and deceit far behind. Their deeds match their words. Their deeds match their words. And true speech is their refuge. And true speech is their refuge. Okay, you realize we're doing that without any preparation. That's just for taking a basic musical phrase and whatever words come up. That's the kind of. Fit it to the breath, almost. Let the breath lead the music. So, I think that's how it was done. I have a feeling when it was chanted back when.、Um, welcome. Is everybody going to listen tonight, or how does that? Great. All right. We have a, a special visit today from 
the City of 10,000 Buddhas Boys School's Chinese Culture Competition Team. How did they do? Most ever. Seven awards. This is Northern California competition? Yeah, in 11 categories. In 11 categories. Son of a gun. Excellent. Okay, well, when they come in later, we can applaud them. All right, uh, after the lecture. That's great. That's really good news. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, uh, those of you who are maybe here for the first time or don't get a chance to listen very often, uh, we're talking about bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are these uh, unselfish human beings. They're people who have gone beyond the golden rule. Good point. Um, They think and act not for themselves. And tonight, the... uh, the, the two stanzas we just looked at really talk directly to the idea of a motive. Um, why, why does a bodhisattva do what he or she does? It's because they are operating from a different center than before. Before, before they um, took delight in the Buddha's bodhi, meaning the Buddha's awakening, like most of us, me and mine were at the center. Pretty much every action that you look at all day long can be traced back to wanting benefit for me or for mine. That is to say, my family, my company, my nation, my race, my my surname, my clan. Um, Sometimes it's even more selfish. It's just my current whim. My motive is to please my desire of the moment. I just want to satisfy the itch that I feel. That's my motive. Sometimes that's the case. Um, if you uh, you can look at uh, I'm not going to go there. I promise I'm not going to talk politics. Mm. Mm. <laughs> not uh, talking about motive for my party to the, the, the benefit of the small group to the detriment of the bigger. Never mind, we won't do that. But you can see uh, that the world, you could say, the uh, ordinary world, operates that way. That's, that's it. It's just my personal advantage. And Bodhisattva um, has radically changed that perspective. It's not just about me or mine. In fact... You could say the Bodhisattva, according to Master Shrenhua, the way he unpacked it for us was the Bodhisattva is really willing to take a loss, really willing to take all the benefits and give them away, not because this person is strange, uh, but because this person has identified with a different center. The center is not bounded by my skin and people who look like me or think like me. The center of the Bodhisattva is expanded. It's everybody. It's really everybody. So, well, that sounds too good to be true, right? Too altruistic. But as we explain this, as we look at it, we'll see that's what the sutra is talking about. Can I get there in my life? Rarely. Rarely. But to know that the sutra points us there is is really... uh, 
it's like a magnet. It draws me back because I, I, I admire that selflessness, that altruism, and I want to be that way. Okay, they greed for neither benefit nor advantage. The Chinese says, Bu Tan Yu Liang. Bodhisattvas, um, do they never have those thoughts? No, my guess is that a Bodhisattva's mind has not been changed, it's not been altered. So when something good shows up, the Bodhisattva may see it as a good thing, something he wants, but he doesn't pursue the greed. He doesn't say, yeah, that's a good thing and I'm going for it. I want that one too, along with mine, more than my share. Um, he doesn't. He lets that thought go. So that thought rises and goes, no, that's a greedy thought. That's going to wind up making me unhappy. That's going to wind up, that's going to give me less than I would have had if I had been content with my share or had even given my share, shared what I had instead of bringing it all towards me. The Bodhisattva catches those thoughts and says, last time I grabbed for all of it, I wound up with less. Um, Wonderful illustration of what greed does comes from uh, Marty, Marty's grandpa. Marty Marty Verhoeven, people know Dr. Verhoeven, my, my colleague here. He grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. And uh, the uh, in Wisconsin, um, guys, when you want to sit, you can like sit in the aisle. Just you know, people can sit. Okay, the, in the farm in Wisconsin, a lot of the images, a lot of the stuff they did came from the natural world, and they were farmers. They grew corn, beans, and wheat all the things that grow in Wisconsin's rich topsoil. And when the corn is ripe, a lot of creatures know. They kind of, they're watching the corn ripen. And when the corn is ripe, you get visits. Not only from two-legged, uh, two-legged thieves, but from four-legged thieves. People come to pilfer the corn and so do the bears. So do the deer. And bears are really funny. They're, you know, bless their hearts, they're not real bright. Bears are not the brightest bulbs in the neighborhood. And so Marty's grandpa described what a bear does when the corn is ripe. He, his greed is really big and his eyes are really small, but his stomach is really huge and behind that is the greed is really big. So the bear starts at one end of the corn row and their hands are pretty dexterous. So they take an ear of corn and they put it under their armpit. They really do. They put one under the armpit. Then they reach for the next one and put it under this armpit, (laughs) dropping the first one. And then they reach for the next one and they put it under this armpit and they drop the next one. But they don't notice and they just, they're storing up their corn all the way down. And in the end, they go through the whole row of corn and they wind up with one year of corn <laughs> at the end. And they may not even notice, but they've been satisfying the greed, right? And they wind up with just one, you know. So that's, that's the way bears go through a row of corn. 
And it's pretty hilarious because, you know, you can see yourself in the bear. You know, it's like, oh, I had one wife, one husband, and I went for the second girlfriend. I went for the second, and guess what? I lost my first one. And then turns out the one that I reached for, the second one, I didn't like once I got it, and I went up alone, you know. Same kind of greed. So uh, that's, that's what greed does, is it winds up devouring what was ours to begin with. So they greed for neither li or yang, benefit or offerings, things that, that they want. They take what comes. And here's the clue. The, uh, a bodhisattva is very busy with the planting and the, the nurturing. They let the harvest take care of itself. Um, the principle in the Dharma is that in a lifetime, the things that come to you are the result of things you've done in the past. The things that are coming to you in the future will be the result of whatever you're doing right now. So with that principle in mind, the bodhisattva pays attention to the planting and the nurturing, watering, weeding, hoeing, harvesting, confident that that will bear fruit if it's planted. Well, if you're a good gardener, there will be a harvest come autumn. If, you, if your harvest is bare right now, it's because you weren't busy planning in the past. Maybe you were ignoring your own garden, but looking over the fence at your neighbor's garden, which is not yours to, to harvest, right? So the bodhisattva really pays attention to the principle, to the process, and uh, could, could somebody make a seat for Dharmaster Genia in here? You mind? Thanks, Joan. Do you mind scooting over? Great. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, um, the Bodhisattva believes in principle and pays attention to that principle. And as a result, the harvest of blessings is complete every season, every cycle. So, that's, that's how a Bodhisattva uh, keeps the blessings going. And busy paying attention to the process of growing blessings. As a result, when the harvest comes, you've got plenty to share with others. You can give to others. So, they don't greed for benefit or advantage, but they are busy, busy, busy tending the garden that they're growing. Okay. Come on in, guys, one by one. We're probably going to get them all in. And sit, you know, like... Climb right over the top of your classmates because they're sitting right in the aisle and they didn't fill in the front. Okay, we've been practicing being unselfish in our seating too. So. As everybody comes in, fill them in the aisle. There's plenty of seats down that way, all right? Great, all right. They don't greet for benefit or advantage, but they're busy growing blessings so they can give them away. They only delight in the Buddha's bodhi. Weiyao for puti. They really love freedom. The Buddha's bodhi is defined as the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha's enlightenment. That's, there's the word. I prefer the word awakening to enlightenment because we don't really know what enlightenment is, but we know what it means to wake up. We do it every morning. 
And bodhi, the root of bodhi is awakening. Like, blink, 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 oh, sun is up, it's time to wake up. So they, they love the Buddha's awakening. And the Buddha's awakening is to what? It's to the truth that the idea that I'm alone in the world is false. That's what the Buddha woke up to. Um, if you had to say in two words, what, what did the Buddha wake up to? It would be wu o, no self. Right this minute, most of us sitting here are pretty much possessed by the idea that I really exist as a separate unit. It's my wallet in my pocket, my credit cards in that wallet. It's my taxes that I pay. It's my food that I eat, my clothes that I'm wearing. That's our, you know, it works. That's a useful concept. Ultimately, it's just not true. Because the Buddha, after sitting still, all those years and months in the forest, in the mountains, in the jungle, what he woke up to is the connection between everybody and everything. Completely connected. Now, um, who says so? Very interesting. What is he, They only delight in the Buddha's Bodhi. Um, there's a YouTube video that's been making the rounds a lot. And I actually showed it to my mother last week. And my mom was busy and didn't really want to watch it. But about three minutes into it, it caught her. And she watched the whole 20-minute video. Who is it? It's Dr. Jill Taylor. We talked about it a year or two ago when it was fresh and new. Jill Bolte Taylor. Go check it out next time you're online. Dr. Jill Taylor. She gave a talk at the TED conference. And TED is an annual conference that happens in Monterey and also in London and also in New York every year. Technology, Entertainment and Design. Three letters. TED. And it's, uh, it's called Ideas Worth Sharing. That's the subtitle. And it's a group of people who invite the best and the brightest together for two or three days, once a year. And they invite technology folks, entertainment, and educators and design people to come and share their ideas. So Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is um, a neurobiologist. She looks at the brain. Okay? And she's at Harvard and she's a researcher. She, at the start of her talk, she actually brings out a human brain. Thank you very much. And she shows the two hemispheres like it's really a human brain with the brain stem, the spinal cord attached. Everybody in the audience goes, yuck. All together now, Yuck. <laughs> And so there she is, she's got rubber gloves and she's holding the brain in her. and she shows how left and right are different and there's a corpus callosum. There's some million, million, million brain cells connecting the left and the right and there's the brain, the spinal cord. And so what? Well, 
She comes from Indiana. She's in her 50s. And she's been studying the brain. And one morning, it was, 19, it was 2006 or something like this, she woke up, as usual, started her routine, got on her extra cycle, and had a major stroke. A blood vessel in the left side of her brain broke, and it started to hemorrhage. And instantly, the left brain went offline, shut down, because she had this stroke. And she said she didn't realize at first what was happening. And here's somebody who studies the brain like a scientist that she is. And so she says, wow, far out. I'm having a stroke. You know, and she describes the process of her right brain taking over. Guess what happens? She loses all sense of personal boundaries. She goes to take a shower and she looks at her hand and it's the same as the molecules of the shower stall tile. And she's going far out. It's really cosmic. She's liberated from what I was just describing, the sense of me and mine being separate and cut off. Because suddenly the left brain kicks in as she's there and she says, oh my God, something's wrong. I've got to get help. I've got to go call. I've got to go to work. I am a person. Goes offline. Far out. Look at that. It's Nirvana, she says. <laughs> and she's a very good storyteller. And as she's describing this experience, you realize, my goodness, that sense of me and mine is all happening in my own brain. But as soon as one hemisphere shuts down, suddenly the total interconnected nature of the universe is available right inside my own brain. And then she goes over and she tries to dial a telephone and she can't tell the difference between the, the number that she gets and the ink on the card and then the telephone dial because it's all just streaming particles with no difference. They're just swirling and streaming. And she goes on from there. It's a wonderful talk. And she uh, changes her perspective forever because she realizes that her very active left brain that knows language, that functions serially one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. You don't have two thoughts at the same time. You've got one thought in sequence with the other and it's very clearly, rigidly, mathematically, sequentially designed. That sits on and limits the mind that operates parallel, which is multiple at once. All colors, all sounds, all sensations of touch, all ideas swirling at once. And that left brain dominates and filters and clamps down on that sense of ultimate peace and ultimate union with everyone. And she's going back and forth between these halves of her brain as the stroke continues. And she gives up because she realizes that she could die. You know, she's, I have to give up because, you know, it's not mine to control. And then she's saved. She's in the ambulance and she wakes up and she remembers that sense of liberation that she had. And that sense of connectedness with all beings. How wonderful, you know. So, now, she's that video, that little clip has been watched 
uh, I saw the count, it's 1,100,000 times. It's been viewed on, I, I, on uh, YouTube. So let me recommend that one to you just for comparison. Jill Taylor, Dr. Jill Taylor on YouTube. Uh, it's called, she calls it my stroke of insight. Because it was a medical stroke, but it, she, it's like a stroke of genius. You know, she, It's a wonderful experience to have this very uh, highly trained Harvard neurobiologist talk about nirvana from her own experience of this sense of no self. So, the difference between what she's describing and what a bodhisattva experiences, well, I won't say I know the difference, but my guess is that a bodhisattva reaches that state of identity through cultivation, not through a medical emergency, right? Not through having it forced offline. The bodhisattva is able to use the Dharma to transform and integrate, let's say, the two halves of the brain, maybe, something like that. But the Dharma's when we say da chi hitting the seventh consciousness, perhaps that seventh consciousness, this is technical language for meditation, might be the corpus callosum that divides the two hemispheres of the brain. Maybe, we're just suggesting. In any case, the bodhisattva is able to use the Dharma to work on the thing that limits the right and left hemispheres, the identity with all parallel and the identity with me serial, if you can think of computers. Something like that. Interesting, interesting idea. They only delight in the Buddha's liberation, that sense of utter identity with all living beings. With one mind, they seek the Buddha's wisdom, concentration undivided, with no other thoughts. In thought after thought, the Bodhisattva is mindful of Buddha Dharma Sangha, precepts, giving, and the devas. Those are things that bodhisattvas are aware of. They're aware of liberation, the Buddha's awakening. They're aware of the methods and techniques that the Buddha and their teachers gave them. They're aware of the harmony of the community of people who are working together with them. Um, back in Ohio, I was with my family for uh, four days. And, you know, very kind-hearted, nice folks. I, I really enjoyed my visit. But I have to say that of all the people I saw going in and out from here, and my plane went from... I got the, the low-cost the low cost fare. I got the early morning 6 a.m. flight, which involved taking off from Oakland, landing in Denver, taking off in Denver, landing in Minneapolis, taking off in Minneapolis, landing in Detroit, and then oh, Chicago, taking off in Chicago and landing in Detroit, getting in a car and driving to Toledo. So, saved a hundred bucks, but I... <laughs> Didn't have to change the plane, thank goodness. If I'd changed the plane, I would have paid the money and gotten a later flight. But it was the same plane. The stewardesses came and went. The tenants, you know, but I stayed. Same seat. 
kind of like that seat now. So. Got to know it. And uh, two of the five landings were terrific. Three of them were not so terrific. <laughs> but of all the people that I saw going up and down, and then in Toledo and Detroit, um, very few of the people that I saw had a sense of me as someone practicing an ancient method of liberation and asked whether they could support that in any way or asked me to share it. Why? I haven't seen monks. Sangha, good and wise advisors, very many. Yet, the Buddha Dharma is brand new in America, in the West. In the Midwest, underscore it three times, really brand new. I may, be, have, been, I may have been the very first robe-wearing, head, shaven-headed, you know, monastic many folks had seen. And the reaction was not negative. I, don't, I didn't get that feeling. But it, walking through the grocery store, you know, shopping with my sister, because my mom is 86 and we went shopping, people are like... <laughs> You know, so, and you get used to being Exhibit A, you know. It's like, um, and uh, on the way back, by golly, standing in line at the, uh, at the Detroit airport, this guy said, you know, Buddhist, right? You know, who is he? Somebody who lives in Oakland getting on the airplane with me, right? So, <laughs> so, so you, if, if you say they concentration undivided with no other thoughts. In order to do that, you have to have a supportive community. That's why shan zhi good and wise advisors, really count if you want to cultivate. Ananda says, world honored one, I've heard that good spiritual friends are half of the, half of the way, at least half of the path. The Buddha says, no Ananda. Good spiritual friends are 100% of the way. It's a shocking comment. Right? How important is it to surround yourself with people who support your practice? Very important. Because cultivation requires undivided concentration. It's not easy to keep your mind on the path. Um, example, my mom, bless her heart, watches CNN. It's not Fox but it's CNN. And CNN is a news network that is uh, commercial. And she turned the TV on, I think because my was in, I was there, I think she only turned it on for the news and then turned it off. But those moments when CNN is blasting into the living room, it is not a good and wise advisor. Network news is not a Chandrasekhar. It's designed to sell things to you. And what else is it designed to do? I think it's designed to keep you in a state of terror. Because the images coming in, if it bleeds, it leads. You know that saying? The things coming rolling into my mother's living room through that television were unwholesome. 
they were designed to make me lose mindfulness and to feel that if I step outside the door, there's a serial killer waiting to shoot me down and there's a SWAT team waiting to get him around every tree, behind every tree, behind every car. Every image had to do with people shooting guns or being shot at around the world. Uh, and they end with a little bit of good news so they can close the program going, hey, 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 that's the news, Judy. You know, A little bit of good news. The rest of it is just this killing, stealing, lust, lying, and intoxicants and the results of those. Now, mind you, I'm sure you're all going, well, yeah, where have you been? You know, yeah, 24 hours has been that way for years. We don't turn the TV on here. So when I touch that stream for even a minute, it's like, turn that thing off. That is harmful to my concentration with not a single divided thought. Man, oh man, is it hard to hold on to concentration with TV as an unwelcome guest in your home. Treat the TV like a guest, like a person. And how long would you be willing to listen to somebody who was sitting there at your dinner table saying, oh, things are really bad out there, boy. Let me tell you about the latest murder. You'd say, um, mm, thank you very much. Could I offer you something to eat so you'll be quiet? You know, <laughs> or would you like to go out in the driveway and say those? Not just not in my living room. TV is not a welcome guest. If you treat it that way, it's like five minutes to get the headlines. Thank you. Turn it off. That's now. TV can be fun. My mother's favorite program, The Dog Whisperer. Caesar Milan on the National Geographic. You know him. Anybody tuned into the Dog Whisperer? Um, he is. You haven't. Okay. Well, what am I doing telling you about TV for? You, you should be telling me. Okay. There is a man named Caesar Milan. He's from Mexico. He came to America uh, penniless and had a particular skill, which is he understands dog psychology. He's really good at it. And there's enough pet owners who can't control their dogs that Caesar Milan is, is invited to come and teach them how to relate to their animals. And he's really good at it. And the interesting thing is, he doesn't worry about the dogs, he trains the people. He trains the people. And once he gives them uh, confidence in psychology, the dogs follow right along behind, because dogs are pack animals. They follow a leader. Very interesting. So it's a National Geographic program. And I watched, and this is fun. This is good. You know, it's useful knowledge because you you see your yourself mirrored in the lessons to the dog owners. So uh, now, mind you, I'm not endorsing the dog whisper, but at least nothing's dying, nothing's being shot at on the program. So anyway, that was that's. It's wrong to say TV's bad. What you can say with some confidence is commercial programming scatters your mind and it's designed to appeal to your lowest nature because in any given hour of television programming you can see killing, stealing, lust, lies and intoxicants on nearly every network show. Okay. Concentration undivided with no other thoughts. How difficult it is to hold your mind steady and how important is Sangha. So, 
Bodhisattvas, as I said, are mindful of six things. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, precepts, giving, the devas, the kind of blessings that lead to the heavens. So those are the six kinds of mindfulness. Let's look at the next verse. They cultivate all the paramitas. They've left flattery and deceit far behind. Their deeds match their words, and true speech is their refuge. Um, take a look at the words. What does it say? Xiuxing Bolomi. They cultivate the paramitas. Paramitas are, it's a Sanskrit word. It's got two different meanings. One meaning is something that takes you across. Paramita is something that allows you to cross over. So if you're stuck on this side and you want to get over, you need a paramita to get across. That's one meaning. The other meaning is perfection as a noun, a perfection, doing something to perfection, perfectly. Not, not too much, not too little, just perfect. Matching the standard. So paramita means those two things. They cultivate paramitas. It's got a capital P, so it's referring to the, the Buddhist technical word, which is the liu bolomi, the six paramitas. The six paramitas. You could say it's also talking about the ten paramitas, because there's, there's two different lists, but we'll talk about the six. Paramitas are bodhisattvas dharma practices. This is what bodhisattvas practice. And they, the paramitas, if we like said, we're going to cultivate and talk about the paramitas this week, uh, by next Saturday we only have scratched the surface. This is a deep, wonderful, rich topic to talk about, the paramitas. Liu bodhami. Um Bodhisattvas cultivate giving, moral, virtuous conduct, patience, vigor, some people say energy, samadhi concentration, and prajna wisdom. Okay? Those are the six. Giving and precepts, patience and vigor, Samadhi and wisdom. Think of them in pairs. Three pairs of, of six. Three, three pairs that make six. That's the six paramitas. Okay. They cultivate... The, ba- the first thing that a bodhisattva does is look at giving. Look at, for example, stuff. There are said to be three kinds of giving. Giving of things giving of courage and giving of dharma. Okay, we're on page 90 and 91. Number two. Bodhisattvas look at the stuff they have and because, what? There's a big change. They are working on that wuwa, no self. Remember, we talked about no self. Because bodhisattvas are working on no self, they look at the things that... um, cement that view of self in them. What are those things? Stuff. What do we talk about? We talk about me and mine. right? 
So me and mine, if we're really working on trying to get past that limit of me as being kind of this unit, right, stopping at my skin, then how do you do that? Well, look at the things in our lives that, that reinforce that view of self. What do they do with them? Well, they are generous. Bodhisattvas are generous. They practice giving. They give things. When the opportunity arises, they give courage. What does giving courage mean? Have you ever been in a situation where you were afraid? At that moment, somebody came up to you and said, This will pass. Hang in there. It's tough, but just keep one foot ahead of the other. You'll make it. You'll get there. Don't be afraid. I'm scared too, but maybe if we work on it together, we'll, we'll make it through. Have you had somebody say some variation of that for you? My guess is you remember. Because in a crisis, those kind of kind words are valuable giving. And if you can, even wordlessly, give courage to somebody in hard times, that, the Buddha said, is really valuable giving. And sometimes it's wordless. Sometimes you just have to mm, just don't move. Um, one example would be, now, if you're 16 years old or 17 years old, mm, you haven't had a lot of people die in your life. If you're 70 years old, guess what? You start losing friends. I had, I had a 70-year-old friend of mine today tell me that in the last month they have lost four friends. Heard that today. Why? Getting old. Okay, when that experience starts to happen, what do you do? Nobody gives you a primer on how to get through the loss of friends. You have to kind of figure it out. People who have some religious, spiritual practice in their lives seem to get through it better. But it's tough. Nobody teaches you how to survive the loss of a loved one. You have to kind of figure it out. What do we do? We look to the strong one in the family. Is that you? Well, it can be. If you have, for example, here's an example. If you have faith in the Buddha Amitabha, our stained glass window here, and the Pure Land, and you have recited the Buddha's name as a practice, or Guanyin Bodhisattva's name, or Great Strength Bodhisattva's name, if you have made that a practice, when we leave our bodies, you have a method to stay solid and not burst into tears, not be terrified, not be angry, all the ways people react to, to loss when they don't have that kind of spiritual anchor. Okay? So, 
in a situation of loss, sudden loss, how terrible it is when someone's young and die. Okay? If someone move, leaves, journeys on, let's say, leaves this body and travels on, how am I going to react? If, because of my faith in the Pure Land, I can go, oh, that hurts. Namo Omitofo. Namo Omitofo. The other folks to the left of you, to the right of you, the people in your family, your friends, your classmates, they look at you and they go, you're not afraid, you're not angry, you're not mad, you're not... Okay, me too. You can, by being firm and stable at that time of crisis, your faith gives courage to others. Now, I'm not... This is not a discussion of what to do at the end of life. It's a discussion of giving courage. I'm saying it only takes one person in a family to be strong and calm in a crisis for the whole family to find strength. That's my experience, watching families go through crises. Um, Likewise, if there's nobody who's strong, all it takes is one person to burst into tears and fall apart and the whole it catches. That also is contagious. So, giving courage sometimes simply means standing on what they call xin, the root of faith in the Pure Land. That's when you see the strength the value. If you recite the Great Compassion Mantra every day, some people do it 108 times a day. Some people recite the mantra so it just becomes like water in a stream running down the stream bed. It seems like as you recite that it's kind of, well, I'm doing this and I'm not entirely sure why, but it feels right and people who I admire have done it, so I'm going to do it. You don't think much of it. When the time comes, when there's sudden loss or big change, earthquakes, storms, accidents, that mantra shows itself. And the strength of your mind reciting that every single day just shines like a pillar of light. I've seen this over and over again. The daily doing of the practice seems like not much. It's not such a big deal. And in fact, sometimes it seems awkward, right? When the time comes, and it might never happen in a lifetime, or it might happen to you every day that your strength is called on, that practice is absolute titanium strength, and it doesn't waver. So, just a word to the wise that it's the daily practice that we do that allows you to do the paramitas, which is what? The giving of courage. Seems like nothing because you can't see it, right? When you recite the mantra, what color is it? Not. How much does it weigh? Not, right? Are you good because you do it? And nobody knows you're doing it. You don't advertise it. But man, oh man, when the time comes, if you've been doing it, you can stand. You don't blow over. 
That's the real value. Is it Guanyin Bodhisattva's vows? Yeah, I think so. And it's also your own strength of your own practice. That's when you see it. So, who is courageous in times, troubled times, when times get hard? Mm, maybe you're, you don't seem like a hero. You know, follow me. Don't be afraid. You know, that's drama. That's theater. It's more like you don't move. And invisibly, the people around you who haven't been cultivating, hold right on. It's enough to have just one person in a group be courageous and unshaken. So, that's the, the giving of courage. Sometimes it's way more simple. You just see somebody crying and you say, it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry. You'll get through it. Even the mountains and the rivers change their course. You know, Nothing lasts forever. Everything changes. Hang on and you'll be fine. Giving of courage. What's the third kind of giving? The third kind of giving is giving of dharma. Giving of dharma. And you have to know when. Uh, sometimes uh, less is more. I remember uh, I was watching this time. I, this, I went to see, I went to a family reunion in Toledo. And I hadn't, we hadn't been under the same roof with my mother for 20 years with all the siblings together. First time together with my older brother, Steve, and my younger sister, Liz. There we were. And uh, uh, we were, uh, my mother was really, really happy to see her kids. Boy, she said, if only I could bottle this feeling and just keep it, you know, and open it a month from now when you're all back, I would just wish I could so I could experience this all the time. So it was really nice. I think reunions are great for moms. But I, I had to laugh because, uh, as I say, even in my family, they, they don't value me as a monk. The fact that I am a Dharma master, right, doesn't count for much. Why? They remember me, <laughs> you know. They know who I was before, and it's not, you know, not anybody you bow to, let me tell you that. <laughs> so, <laughs> to say the least. And then there's the time when you're the new monk and every communication, you know, you're really not very secure in your identity. And so every word, you know, it's like you don't dare speak if it's not from the Dharma master's mouth. And I remember um, going doing that for years. I would like, before I called my mother, I called, you know, once a week, I would like recite Guan Yin's name and really... Be careful and get my voice just right so when I could talk, I could be the monk, you know. Nothing. <laughs> and uh, then there was a time when I realized that was, she saw right through that, right? And there was one phone call. It must have been, I'd been a monk for 10 years and she said, you know, honey, she said, it's so nice. You seem to have relaxed and it's really nice to have a conversation with you when not every word has to be dharma. <laughs> okay, I guess you got my number, Mom. So, how do you speak Dharma? For How do you give Dharma? Sometimes less is more. Where do you see that? Oh my goodness, new vegetarians. Boy, oh boy. The newly created vegetarian who goes home to the meat-eating family and is like really righteous about 
the dirty food they're eating and how bad it stinks, you know. And you all know that you're eating cancer, don't you? Like, well, you spoiled that meal. Why don't you go eat over there or go to a restaurant? You know? So, it's for people who are really happy with their cultivation and want to share that with their family, a really good way to do it is, as they say in Chinese, practice what you preach. Let your let your actions tell the story. Don't use your words to preach. Don't preach when you're with your family. If somebody says, tell me a little bit about this practice that you've got. Then you could say, well, um, I'm trying really hard to change my bad habits. Say that much. Or you could say, meditation calms my mind. Meditation calms my mind. Four words. It's pretty hard to get into a fight with just four words. But if you preach... As soon as you have an ism, well, Buddhism says, you know, cause and effect is really true, just like your Bible, only, you know, the Buddha was alive before Jesus, you know, 500 years, you know, we're older than you are, you know. (laughs) Right away, you've got sides and, you know, people are, it's this huge gulf between less is more. Fewer words works better. Why? Because we're all really tuned into each other. We're all on each other's radar screen all the time. You know, especially family. My mother knows what her children are thinking before, before we move a thought. You know, she's tuned into it. She's, she's the mom. She's watching. She's watching her radar screen. You know. And if you're happy, she knows it. If you're afflicted and you're covering, she knows it. It's not true, right? So, if you want people, let's say, be specific, to experience the joys of a vegetarian diet, number one, eat healthy. Number two, don't preach. Don't get in people's face about what they eat. Here's what you do. Say instead, um, do you suppose we could pick one meal per week and substitute a vegetarian dish for that, that dish? And here's what I've cooked. How do you like it? In fact, here's a spoonful. Taste it and tell me how you like it. That's the way to make vegetarians. You have to replace what people are used to eating with something that tastes as good. If you can do that, people will consider the possibility of changing. But if you get your finger in there and say, you shouldn't eat this, this is bad. It's like, mind your own business. Who are you to tell me? My mother fed me this food and food is love. My mother loves me. You can't tell me she doesn't. Get out of my face with your. If you like what you eat, you go eat it. Don't tell me what I should be eating. My mother loved me. That's what she gave me to eat. 
You know, it's like, okay. That's really basic. Food is really basic. I've had people tell me, they say, oh, I went to a holistic healer and the holistic healer did acupuncture on me and I didn't like those needles, but I took them. And that holistic healer gave me these horrible tasting herbs and I pinched my nose and I choked them down and that teacher gave me painful twina massage and I was willing to take it because I wanted to get better. But you know what? They told me that what I was eating was bad for me. I ain't going to change. I don't know if I stop eating that. What else is there? Plus that irritated me. You know, People will take all kinds of interventions, tell them to change their diet. They'll do it for a day. They'll look at the fridge. They're hungry. They got 10 minutes before they got to get in the car and go. To... They don't know what to eat. They're not going to change. So in giving Dharma, you have to understand psychology. And if it's vegetarian Dharma, the way to do it is cook something that people enjoy and are willing to eat in place of something they're giving up. It has to taste good. If you say, that's really good for you, people go, mm-hmm, that's nice, yeah, thanks a lot. You know, never again. You know. So, ha. Huh. My very first Thanksgiving, I told you this story before. I went to college and decided I was going to be a vegetarian, by golly, and came back for Thanksgiving that first year, and in came the turkey. <laughs> I said, are you going to feed us dead meat for Thanksgiving? What are you celebrating, death? <laughs> right? Guess what? I spent my Thanksgiving out in the front yard because my dad threw me out of the house. How skillful was that? Right? So was I a good Dharma speaker? No, I scored points against the Buddha because here I am being a vegetarian. So you have to understand psychology if you want to speak the Dharma. They say, Fa bu gu qi, ping yuan, feng sheng. The Dharma does not arise by itself. It depends on conditions. I don't believe it was the case that the Buddha said, okay, everybody, get out your tape recorders and sit down because I'm going to speak a sutra. He did do that once, the Amitabha Sutras. The Dharma has to arise by invitation. When the Buddha spoke the sutras, it was because somebody came up to him and said, help! We got a big problem. Here are two kingdoms fighting over the water in the river that's drying up. Saved their lives, world honored one. So the Buddha walked into the river and said, okay, here's a handful of water. What's more valuable? The king's life or this handful of water? Well, the king's life. Well, what's more valuable? That king's life or this handful? Well, the king's life. And yet you're willing to trade something very valuable in a war and fight for something that's not that valuable. They all go, yeah. Well, let's sit down and talk about how to share the water. Because oh, okay. So the Buddha took that occasion to speak the Dharma. Other times, kings requested the Buddha to speak after lunch. His disciples remembered it. It became a sutra. Okay. So other times he spoke for the devas, or 
the Lotus Sutra was spoken, is still being, there are other yin yuan. But in general, Dharma speaking, the gift of Dharma, relies upon an invitation. Wait for the chance to speak it. Often, especially in the family, you do better silently. Okay? If you go home and you say, I'm now a Buddhist, and then you get angry, or you got this frown because you're cultivating way too hard, and you, you know, it's like, what, what's the message you're delivering to your family? Buddha Dharma makes people upset. Buddha Dharma causes afflictions. I don't want that. But if you don't advertise your Buddhist practice and yet your heart is soft, when people talk to you, your tone of voice is gentle, you meet their gaze, you're not upset when something goes wrong, what do they think? They'll think, maybe there's something to whatever he's doing, whatever she's doing. What is that? So, you speak Dharma with your own behavior. Very effective. That's the way to do the giving of Dharma. Now, mind you, uh, that being said, the opportunity to speak Dharma is joyful. Master Shrenhua encouraged all his disciples lay and monastic to speak Dharma to try it out he said if you know one part speak one part if you know a hundred parts speak a hundred parts so there's also that um, they cultivate all the paramitas so giving is the first one giving of wealth things giving of courage fearlessness giving of Dharma um of the three, they say the giving of Dharma is the most valuable. So, the paramita of giving, it says, goes over stinginess, holding on to stuff. I interpret that as the things that reinforce that view of me as a separate, broken person. If you want to get past that view that I'm here alone in the world, and I'm in the center and I'm the most important one, if you know that's a wrong view, what do you do? Bit by bit, you work with that view and you start by giving away the stuff that supports it. Not beyond what you need, but what do I need? Good question. That's really in this world of material stuff, um, the world of consumption, it's helpful to look at it and think, what do I really need? How much do I need? How much is enough? That's, that's always a healthy question to ask. Okay, they cultivate all the paramitas. They have left flattery and deceit far behind. Their deeds match their words and true speech is their refuge. I got ready to um, talk all about true speech tonight. Um, I'm not going to have time to do that, so we'll do that next week. Um, this very sutra, the Abhatamsaka, this very chapter, the Ten Grounds, is the place where you find out how bodhisattvas talk. Oh man, it's so wonderful to have the sutra say, bodhisattvas talk like this. Here's what they avoid. 
Where is that? Second ground. We're not there yet. We're in the verses of the first ground. But when you get to the second ground, of all the Buddha Sutras I've ever read, it is the most precise, clear, straight-ahead description of how to behave to benefit others and to transform that view of self. It says, Bodhisattvas never lie, gossip, swear, or talk frivolously, which means dirty jokes or just prattle. Then it goes into detail. It says they avoid this kind of speech. Blah, 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 blah. It talks about it. They always talk this way. And it shows you how they talk. And I'll, I'll save this for next week, but I had an experience when I was uh, bowing outside and focusing only on this one book, the Avatamsaka Sutra. I had this experience of getting to that section of the text uh, and having it it just turned into a mirror. I saw my face in this text. It was talking about chi, frivolous speech. And I saw that most of the trouble that I had had in my childhood and through my teenage years came because why? I wanted to be known as a funny guy. I wanted people to like me, normal, for especially when you're an adolescent, when you're in your teenagers. My friends were really important to me. How did I get people to like me? Mostly, I thought, I want to make them laugh. Because if you can make somebody laugh, they like you, right? But what if the jokes you're telling bend the truth? What if you tell a joke that hurts somebody else for a laugh? Will you do it? Well, if they'll like me, yeah. Trouble, right? That's called false speech. And the result is, what? The sutra, we'll, we'll get there, right? We'll, but I'll, I'll give you the preview of coming attractions, okay? The sutra says, if you use qi yu, if you speak frivolously, you can lose your human body, it says, if it's really serious. If you're born as a human, you get two kinds of reward. One, your words are not easily understood. Two, people don't accept what you say. And, okay, unpack that. If you do that a lot, if you, what I did, in order to be liked, tell jokes even when they're painful or not true, just to be liked and funny, <laughs> you're a joker all the time. When you really want to say something because you care about it and you want your words to matter, what do people do? They blow you off. They go, like that. Or they go, no. What? They say, all my adolescence and my young adulthood I found people before I became a monk and was silent for six years I had this incredible frustration that I had never identified which was people were talking about something that mattered and I wanted to give an opinion I would say something and people would go they would completely ignore what I said and turn to somebody else and I would go or the words I was always saying was no no that's not what I meant 
the sutra says two things happen. One, people misunderstand what you say. Or two, your words are not accepted. All that I wanted to do at a certain point, I didn't want to be a joker and a funny guy anymore. I wanted people, I wanted to count. I wanted to be one of the group in saying things, right? As a result of the <laughs> all the time, right? When I said something that counted, people would go, what? Or they would say, well, what he said. And I would say, no, no, that's not what I meant. That was always in my mouth. No, no, that's not what I meant. The result of chiyu. When I bowed to that part of the sutra and saw the words on the page, the sutra became a mirror. How strange. I looked and I saw my face. That was what had happened to me all my life. Was I had created a situation where nobody believed me. Nobody wanted to hear what I said. When I said it, they didn't pay attention to it or they got it wrong. Compared to somebody who what? Doesn't <laughs> doesn't tell dirty jokes, frivol- funny jokes frivolously. When you say a word, people go, right. That's right. I craved that and never got it. And there in the sutra was my baddest habit. How amazing to have the sutra tap me on the shoulder and say, look, hurts, huh? Here's why. thought, ooh, I like the Avatamsaka Sutra. Thank you, it hurts. <laughs> hurts good. There it was. The sutra becomes a good teacher right in my face. I didn't know that it was my habit of wanting to be liked and doing it by telling jokes that created a situation where my words were weightless. My words are like popcorn, confetti. Didn't matter a bit what I said. How painful. So for six years I was quiet and promised that when I finally started speaking again, I wasn't going to be a joker. I was going to try to make my words count. And you can go too far so that your mother says, it's so nice that when you talk these days, not every word has to be dharma. <laughs> I went too far, you know, like every word I had to pray before I said every word. Nobody wants to listen to that either, you know. So, middle way, be straight. Okay, there we go. So, preview, we're going to get into the Bodhisattva's speech next week. And in your sutra, you've got a dedication of merit. And I'd like to ask everybody, please, to make a wish with your heart. The dedication is a chance to share with the world um, your good heart, your wish to change. And please do that. It's your wish is yours. The dedication is up to you how you want to send out your merit. Just being here with everybody is a source of goodness. And dedication of merit actually goes beyond the body. It's one of those practices that the Bodhisattva does to transcend 
that sense of lonely self. On uh, Sunday nights at City of 10,000 Buddhas, I had this rare opportunity to lecture on the Avatamsaka's Ten Transferences. And what that chapter is, from one perspective, is many, 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 many transference wishes, dedication wishes that the Bodhisattvas make. So here's our chance to imitate an Avatamsaka Bodhisattva and send out a wish for goodness, um, personal, social, universal, it's up to you. But let's do it together. Thank you. 